Um, welcome to the Taiwan Studies podcast hosted by the North American Taiwan Studies Association. My name is Yiping Chan, host of today's episode, and I'm a PhD candidate in English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State. I'm also on the program committee of NASA. Um, we are delighted to have Professor James Lin at the University of Washington join us today to chat about work-life balance, research and pedagogy, and a unique Taiwan Studies program at U of Washington. Welcome, James. So, how would you introduce yourself? Hi, Yiting. Thanks so much for having me here. So, my name is James Lin. I'm an assistant professor of international studies and an adjunct assistant professor of history at the University of Washington. Uh, I do research on the history of Taiwan, specifically the history of agrarian development in Taiwan and the world. And I'm honored to be here. I'm really happy to speak about uh, kind of my perspectives and also on Taiwan studies. Given that you know, like the global pandemic, you know what's um, whatever is going on now has changed the way we work and talk about work. So, I'm wondering um, if uh, you could share with us your take on academic work-life balance, especially nowadays. People are paying more attention to uh, self-care and breaks. So, how did you cultivate you know work-life balance while you are a grad student, and what it means to you as a faculty member? Yeah, absolutely. I think if there is one silver lining to this whole pandemic crisis, it's this re-emphasis on health and why health is so important. And I think this is really crucial, especially for those of us in academia, because oftentimes, um, especially mental health, is not taken as seriously by uh, graduate students uh, and even by young faculty. Uh, so. I think my my first kind of point I want to make about this is it's important for all of us to take health seriously, both physical and mental. So uh, I know that in when I was a student and also where I am now, there are campus resources that are available for meeting with professionals to talk about issues of mental health. So take advantage of those resources. Um, there's no need to feel shy about using them. And I think that especially because of the kind of work that we do, where we're mostly isolated when we do our research, we're not working in teams, um, that uh, mental health can be quite an issue and that, uh, you know, be sure to watch out for that. And if you feel like you need to access a professional, please do so. Um, the second point I wanted to make is that also in our profession, there seems to be this culture of what I like to call infinite productivity. Mm. So this idea that we're supposed to be productive at all times of the day, we're supposed to constantly push out research, we're supposed to be um, helping out in our community, uh, we're supposed to be reading all the time, and it's kind of unrealistic in some ways. And this can actually lead to some of what I was talking about earlier with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important to recognize that this ethos of infinite productivity is not something that we all have to buy into, you know, like, right. yes, it's true that we have a lot of stress and a lot of pressure to produce research, mm -hmm. to do lots of different things, mm -hmm. but sometimes this can be counterproductive. It can make you more stressful. It can make your research less effective. Mm -hmm. So um, that leads me to my third point, which is it's important to take time off, regardless mm -hmm. of whatever stage you're in in your career, mm -hmm. to spend some time on yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean things like, you know, taking time off during the weekends, spending time with family, with friends, uh, exercising regularly, having hobbies that are outside of our academic careers. Mm -hmm. um, some of us might like to meditate. 
to go out with friends. Uh, once the pandemic stops, you can go out to travel. These are the kinds of things that I encourage everyone to carve out a little bit of space for. Um, I know it's not always easy, or I should say easier said than done, but mm -hmm. I've always found that carving out the time to do this really helps for your mental health. And in the long run, that actually does help with your research and with your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing uh, these points. Um, I'm so happy that you brought up the issues of mental health because during this pandemic, I've seen like a few of my colleagues, you know, um, their mental health issues are, are only intensified. And um, uh, during these times, especially now, like also we live in a very kind of rural college town, the medical resources are not so great. So I just wish that um, the US academic culture or I guess academic culture in general could be more open to talking about mental health issues. Cause I don't think it's something that we should only save it for say our therapists or our providers. I feel like we can have a more open, honest conversations about what is hurting us every day and how we can, what we can do to address that. And um, I'm actually quite um, like, um, I guess like, uh, attracted to the points about, you know, like carving out space for yourself as a way to uh, take care of your, of your body mind to make yourself a happier person. So just out of curiosity, uh, what do you usually like to do to make yourself happy or just to relax? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think your point earlier about the importance of mental health is, is really key. And I do hope that that's something that changes going forward. Um, for myself, I know it's going to depend on each person. Uh, I have lots of friends who do different things to, to, to kind of get away from academic life. Um, for me, I, I really like to cook, and I find that cooking provides a nice balance to uh, writing or to academic research because writing is such a long-term project. Mm -hmm. You sometimes don't feel like you're progressing on a day-to-day -day basis, but with cooking, you're using your hands, and within like 30 minutes to an hour, you can produce something that is not only... Uh, yeah. Well, sometimes can be beautiful, but tasty, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and at least it'll provide you sustenance. So um, it's something that I found I've really enjoyed. But I would encourage you, you know, whatever you might like to do to pursue that. Um, if you don't have anything, then find some new hobbies. Uh, during grad school, I picked up so many new hobbies. I started rock climbing. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of uh, met lots of different friends who introduced me to different things. Mm -hmm. And it's such a great opportunity to explore that with some of your grad school colleagues or with some of your faculty colleagues as well. Yeah, yeah, like trying all new things. And uh, I can deeply relate to the cooking part because I, I love cooking. And I recently ordered a uh, baker's rack to <laughs> reorganize my kitchenware and that just made me feel so good. And um, I was also thinking about how like cooking, um, which means that you need to use your own hands to create stuff and make nutritious food to feed your body. Um, I was thinking about how recently, uh, I was reading this book by this Japanese chef who is uh, 90 year old or something. And she was born during the World War II and then she liked to talking about how making nutritious food really make your body happy. Like I remember she was saying that when your body eats the food that you really like, like each cell in your body will be happy. And I think that is so, I don't know, I think it's so important. Um, like a lot of time we don't talk about that enough. Um, yeah. So it sounds like um, I'm pretty sure that um, 
how like having a really nice work-life balance could really sustain your research. And because that's the really like foundation of our whole like body mind and how we can move forward. And uh, now I want to talk about your research and teaching. So uh, I know that you are a historian working on international agrarian development, which means that your subject matter, your research speak to um, like many geographic and disciplinary areas. So I'm just curious to know how like, how do you usually use um, teaching pedagogy to enhance your interdisciplinary research? Yeah, this is a good question because um, I think this is the case for most of us where our research is usually going to be more specialized than the kinds of courses that we would be asked to teach, especially as a grad student. I think that often you're asked to TA for uh, what tends to be large survey courses where this is kind of like an introduction to your uh, to your field and it doesn't necessarily at first glance overlap with your research or it might um, but I think for me it it wasn't the case and I think that in these instances it's there are certain ways in which we can build kind of um, overlaps so that we're not we're seeing these as complementary endeavors so one is uh, and this is something I didn't really kind of think about until I was out looking for a job on the job market mm. that the qualifying exam might seem like it's kind of this thing to test you and to make sure that you're, mm -hmm. you're good enough. But actually the qualifying exam for me was a process in which I actually began to think about the larger field and became prepared to answer questions that might come from students. And so mm. I think this is one that's really important, which is mm. to think about what we're reading in our research as a way to, um, build our own knowledge and to translate what we do into terms that are approachable for students. Mm -hmm. And this is also really important because when you're expected to do public scholarship, so um, books especially, for those of us who are in book fields, mm -hmm. or certain kinds of large articles, like if you're writing for the American Journal of Sociology, for example, where you have a massive audience, that certain kinds of academic writing are actually writing for large audiences, people who are not specialists in what you do. And teaching is an excellent tool for framing how your research is important. Because the first thing that someone thinks about when they read your research is, so what? Why is this important? Why should I read this? And actually, the, the kind of audience that you want to convince is very similar in background to, I would say, uh, a smart undergraduate student. Mm. Someone who is able to pick up very quickly on certain things, as long as you frame it correctly, and as long as you translate it for a general audience, that you don't require a certain level of specialist background. Mm -hmm. And so the act of teaching, of translating different things for different audiences, mm -hmm. is a way in which you can practice actually writing skills, really important research writing skills, research presentation skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I was thinking about how a lot of time... Um, I was told by you know some other faculty members or um, other fellow senior fellow grad students about how we don't get to teach what we research. But actually, I don't think that's always the case because um, I I'd like to see how different uh, humanity disciplines or knowledge formation is interconnected. So whatever we study, whatever we read. I feel like they're always speaking to each other as long as we can find the right angle or the right language to translate them. And, um, and I was also thinking about like the question of 
why does a certain subject matter? That is actually a question that I like to ask my student to answer. And then sometimes I like to tweak that question or turn it into a quiz question, you know, like kind of open-ended quiz question so that during the quizzing, they have to teach themselves and answer that question for themselves. And um, so um, I'm interested to learn, you know, what are some kind of creative assignments or activities you ever ask your students to do to help them understand the importance or you know the relevance of a certain topic? Yeah, no, I think that um, what you were just talking about, kind of asking your students to consider what the importance is, is just a really key element of what I understand to be kind of like uh, leading pedagogical methods, which is like active learning, which is turning questions around, asking your students to think about why things are important in a way that like they're kind of teaching you. And this is shown to be, uh, well, maybe we should have Diane kind of elaborate because she's the expert. <laughs> but from my understanding, it seems to be like this is, this is the way in which students learn the best, which is that they're required to absorb the materials, kind of think about it, and then represent it back to a different audience. And through this process, this is active learning process where they tend to kind of absorb things. And I think this is true. Um, so I like to do things like this as well. Sometimes I will ask my students, uh, why do you think I assigned this reading? And this is really fun because you get all different kinds of answers. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, through the, the course of discussing through what your students are answering, you kind of usually get to something that is along the lines of what you were thinking. Mm -hmm. um, another example I like to do is in my Taiwanese history class, yeah. uh, I like to do role playing. And this is, this is more, I think, for the social sciences or history where you can kind of recreate uh, a social scientific dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, so one that I really like is uh, something that's very appropriate for today with uh, Li Donghui's passing right. is the process of democratization in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And so during my role play, I give them uh, a, a handout sheet that sets up the circumstances of the role play. So mm -hmm. I split the class into different groups. I say like, you are Jiang Jingguo, you mm -hmm. are the elite Guomindang, you are yeah. Dong Wei. Yeah. Uh, you are uh, you are the Guomindang left represented by people like Li Donghui. Mm -hmm. um, and then I give them certain circumstances. I say like, uh, you are to discuss this issue of democratization, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, as the hard right Guomindang, you have the secret police at your hand. So if you don't like anything, you can send the secret police to detain anybody. Mm -hmm. And so I let them play out different scenarios. After each scenario, I have them write down what they observe. And mm -hmm. at the end of the exercise, I make sure that they kind of write down their thoughts about why they think democratization occurred mm -hmm. in Taiwan or the different factors for it. Uh, mm -hmm. And they get a real kick out of it because those who play the Guomindang love to call a secret police to <laughs> crack down on the protesters. And this is very accurate. This is exactly what happened historically. Yeah. Um, but once you introduce certain constraints, when you tell them things like, well, actually, uh, if you keep sending the police and sending the military to crack down, mm -hmm. um, there might be a popular revolution. Everybody else in the classroom might revolt and execute you. Now, how does that change your perspective on the matter? And so you really see this kind of changing dynamics that affect mm -hmm. how democratization actually occurred historically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that idea. I've never asked my students to do role playing in my class. Um, so I was thinking about like, I might really steal that idea next time I teach literature, because I feel like a lot of things um, cannot really be explained. You know, like sometimes knowledge has to be performed and right. you have to imagine yourself in a certain historical context and think about the choice you make, uh, things you do. And um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I was thinking about like how this, I, 
this uh, role-playing thing can really uh, be helpful to um, class at, uh, classes like Asian American literature that is had has a really heavy focus on race and the racial dynamics as well. Um, so uh, thank you for sharing with us on um, your like uh, ideas about the interplay between teaching and uh, uh, researching. Um, so I'm also thinking about um, since you are the first faculty, you know, hired uh, as part of the unique time studies program at University of Washington. So would you mind sharing with us some of the history and the presence of the program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so University of Washington has always had kind of a, a long presence in Taiwan studies. Uh, you know, we've had Steve Harrell, longtime anthropologist, uh, Jeff Ho, who's been studying uh, urban spaces and community movements uh, for a long time, uh, Gary Hamilton, sociologist mm -hmm. of Taiwan's economy. Um, so there's always been this kind of long-standing tradition of Taiwan studies in the UW, but there wasn't any kind of formal institution for this. And so uh, in late 2017, actually a little bit earlier, about 2016, they decided to kind of try to build a program. And so in 2017, I joined and the program was formally established as the Taiwan Studies Program. Mm -hmm. uh, the goals are to offer Taiwan Studies courses, to offer public programs to educate the public about Taiwan, mm -hmm. and also to help build the field of Taiwan studies to kind of um, basically the same mission as what NATSA does, to make sure that Taiwan studies has a home academically, not just here in uh, Seattle, but throughout mm -hmm. North America, throughout right. the world. Mm -hmm. um, so in the time since 2017, mm -hmm. we have uh, offered regular Taiwan studies courses. I do a, a regular graduate seminar uh, I do an undergraduate modern time history class, and uh, those syllabi are on the NATSA <laughs> syllabus project. So thank right. you, Diane, for doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a lot more planned. We have really ambitious plans to grow. We have a bunch of workshops. Uh, as you know, you were part of the Global Island right. Workshop, which is the, our first kind of major workshop. Uh, mm -hmm. We had another one that was planned for April, but that's been right. delayed. But we hope to do that uh, in a different form soon. That's the Landscape in Taiwan Workshop. Mm -hmm. um, we plan to do a couple more, uh, mm -hmm. one on migration and labor in Taiwan, hopefully another one in Cold War Taiwan, we'll mm -hmm. see. Um, and uh, we were of course very happy to host NATSA last year mm -hmm. in May. And uh, we also hope to host the World Congress of Taiwan Studies mm -hmm. uh, originally for next year, but we think we might delay that to the following mm -hmm. year because of COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah, these all sound really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm really happy to say that I was the uh, part of the first year, uh, I guess like first time participants in that workshop. And I think the very reason why I joined NATSA was like because I met the people there and then they kind of like we became friends and that's how I joined um, this organization. Oh, that's great. And yeah, yeah, I'm happy, really happy about that. Um, I also think it's really um, interesting to think about the theme of that year, Global Islands, is like has such a global uh, comparative and interdisciplinary focus. And um, I'm just thinking about like how like, um, you know, like to institutionalize Taiwan studies, how is it possible to, um, I guess like institutionalize it while not making it another like area studies um, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. I mean, um, it's also especially tough because 
the area studies, traditionally, historically speaking, were really kind of constructed out of the Cold War. And this was out of uh, a very specific U.S. Cold War interest in understanding parts of the world that the U.S. government feared would fall under communist influence. Okay. And so this has been kind of the cloud that has hung over area okay. studies up until the present. Okay. And Taiwan studies in some ways is kind of like that in the, in the idea that it's kind of emerging along with the ongoing decolonization of Taiwan okay. from earlier from Japanese rule, but especially from Kuomintang authoritarian rule. And this right. is ongoing with democratization. Um, in these contemporary times, I think that, you know, with Taiwan arguably being kind of seen as a, uh, an object of discussion within larger U.S.-China tensions, mm -hmm. that this is especially something that we have to be on the lookout for, that Taiwan isn't being, just being used as kind of a political football for mm -hmm. other purposes. Um, so I think that it's important when we think about the academic field that we make sure that we're institutionalizing Taiwan studies in a way that furthers the academic study of Taiwan in a long-term fashion that's mm. not determined by political objectives. Mm. Um, so here in the Taiwan Studies program at UW, we have been trying to further institutionalize. We've been trying to, to build actually a degree studies program for Taiwan mm. Studies. And so there are not many of these in the world. There's uh, mm -hmm. SOAS in the UK, which has an MA program, and UT Austin has mm -hmm. an undergraduate Taiwan Studies program as part of their Asian Studies department that focuses on literature. And mm -hmm. so we actually want to do both. We want to do both an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, both in Taiwan studies. Uh, our specialty leans more towards social mm -hmm. sciences. So we're hoping to find that as a niche, uh, but it's very difficult. It's um, difficult to get new majors approved when right. you don't have a lot of courses to offer. It's difficult to get new courses when you don't have a lot of faculty offering courses. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to get new faculty if you don't have money, especially. Mm -hmm. and Raising money, of course, is a very difficult mm -hmm. endeavor as well. It requires a lot of time, a lot of investments, a lot of connections, and a lot of luck. And mm. so um, this is something that has been, has been kind of a, a difficult issue to, to face, just putting, even putting aside kind of the, the intellectual mm. and the political questions. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess to, to bring it back, I think that what probably most of us can do, especially within NASA, is just mm. to work to continue to institutionalize Taiwan mm -hmm. studies, continue mm -hmm. to support the good work that NASA does in mm -hmm. annual conferences, in, um, you know, Diane has been doing a lot of things recently with AAS, Association for Asian Studies, mm -hmm. to make sure that there are Taiwan studies panels, mm -hmm. uh, to organize uh, things like this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as we can get the word out that Taiwan is an interesting place to study and has a lot to offer to a variety of academic subjects, to better understand the world, to better understand society, to better mm -hmm. understand humanity, then I think that um, these are just really good ways to mm -hmm. make sure that Taiwan Studies does have a future. So if any audience member is interested in the upcoming NATSA podcast and also this one, you can find more information on our NATSA website. And I hope everyone has a great day. Um, thank you all for listening. All right. Thanks for having me.